Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with John Forte about his book, The Heirloom Gardener, Traditional Plants and Skills for the Modern World. We'll be talking about how you can curate history in your own backyard through the cultivation of heirloom plants and how that can make for a more sustainable world. Get ready to get down in the dirt on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to have a conversation about heirloom gardening and uh traditional plants, skills for the modern world, and the intersection of all those things. And we're talking with John Forte, and John is a heirloom specialist, a garden historian, an ethnobotanist. He also serves as the executive director of Bedrock Gardens, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into what that is and what they do there. Um, but before we dive into all of that, we love to get to know folks and kind of what led them on the path to where they are today. So, um, how does one become an, an ethnobotanist, a garden historian, um, a lover of heirloom plants? What's the, the path to all of this, John? Well, I think in my instance, it was being raised by a river um, in New England, where it was very evident in the landscape how many people had lived there before me and influenced that landscape. And it piqued my interest and curiosity. And so whether it was the stone walls that ran through the woods, the uh, nearly 400-year-old Roxbury russet apple that was in front of the shipwright's house and tavern near our, near our home, or all the other things you discover in those woods, they just piqued my curiosity. And they really, as did the plants around me. And so it just led to work in the field, studies in the field, uh, because it I was always trying to satiate that curiosity about the landscape. That sense of place, I'd say, is a driving factor, really. And did you, so did you go and study this kind of thing? Is this sort of your academic background as well? Yes, but really when I was a teenager, I also started working in a garden center. And that was my first strong influence where I, you know, apart from gardening and uh, relatives' gardens as a kid, it gave me a sound knowledge of plants and their common and Latin names and their, you know, their cultural needs. And then when I went off to college, I'd started to study actually Japanese and journalism and realized as much as I loved the idea of going to Japan as a journalist, that plants kept calling me back. And I'd taken on a temporary su uh, summer job at a museum called Plymouth Plantation. And they kept, um, somehow I'd say, uh, uh, encouraging me to do work in their horticulture department. And I ended up switching majors so that I was um, more focused on ethnobotany and garden history and dropped, you know, fell, let the Japanese and journalism fall away. Um, and then ended up becoming their horticulturist as soon as I graduated from college. So that was really your first job in the field for people listening. Plymouth, uh, I guess it's now called Plymouth Patuxent, um, but but Plymouth Plantation um, in in Plymouth, Mass. 
was your sort of first job in the field. Talk to us about that. Like what what doesn't does a horticulturist do at a 17th century um, historic site? Well, my primary research was in the first plants brought by the first immigrants to the colony, who we know today as the pilgrims, and the native plants grown by the uh, First Nations, the Wampanoag that lived there. And um, taking those plants and all the research uh, of 17th century gardens, both um, primary sources, but also, you know, the less common primary sources like archaeological evidence and pollen and seed analysis uh, to reconstruct the raised bed kitchen gardens of those first immigrants or um, of the the gardens of the Wampanoag and turn those into teaching exhibits, uh, teaching gardens around the medicine in each culture, the plants of each culture, and um, how they were thought of by the early herbalists. And did that, I mean... Obviously, starting at a young age, and we hear this over and over again in PreserveCast, people kind of getting an affinity for their work even at a young age. You obviously had a real strong background in plants and, like you said, you know the Latin names and the common names and things like that. But that experience of working at Plymouth, were there sort of – were there moments where you – realized you loved it even more or you began to really, um, you know, learn things that you didn't expect you would find? Is that Was that sort of an, an eye-opening experience or was it just sort of the first practical application for you? Well, it was an eye-opening experience in that I never, in the nursery or the garden center business, you don't think of the stories behind plants. You're thinking about the cultural need of the plant, best best place, best, you know, for the plant to grow and things. But in a museum setting, you're thinking about the cultural history of a plant, um, how people used it for food and medicine and textiles and cordage and spiritual needs. Um, so these are all ways that really piqued my interest. And as I was exploring those, Clearly, the the native plants behind those stories and the heirloom plants called me to think about preservation in a very different way than you do when you're coming through garden centers. And there's, you know, at that point, it wasn't in the common cultural understanding, I, I'd say, too much. And so it was I was starting events like our rare breeds and heirloom seeds weekend that tried to get people to think about how to integrate these back into our life and into our lives and local economies because at that point we were just starting to think about local foods again and what it meant to have these storied plants back in circulation. Yeah, and I feel like there's sort of been you know even in the past 10 years a real shift towards not only heirloom plants, but also native plants. I, I remember I went to a, um, a lecture by Doug Tallamy um, on bringing native gardens into your, or native plants into your gardens. And for me, I always just sort of thought like, well, any plant's a good plant for animals or for insects. And then that was like a sort of a shocking, like, oh no, that's actually not true at all. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and there's some plants that are terrible for, for you, for your garden and things like that. And so even in my own little slice of this world, like I'm slowly trying to transition everything over to natives and then with, with gardening using heirlooms and things like that. 
talk to us about, so you obviously have this really great experience working at Plymouth, which is sort of a, a true introduction to heirlooms and things like that, and native plants for that matter. Um, and then you've, you've got a book, which is a fantastic book called The Heirloom Gardener, Traditional Plants and Skills for the Modern World, um, which people listening should pick this up. We'll have a link in the show notes to where they can buy it. Um, talk to us about how you got to writing the book. Like when, when did you decide, and it kind of makes sense as you talk about your background as you had sort of this journalism bug. So of course, the idea of writing something kind of makes sense now that we're getting to know you. But um, talk to us about the thought process about, you know, actually then sitting down and writing a book about all of this. Well, for me, I was really honored because Timber Press asked me to write a book about garden history. And I've always thought of them as sort of the premier horticultural press in the country. And I saw an opportunity to write not just another book about the Olmsteads, but a way that we can apply history to create a more sustainable future. You know, you mentioned Doug Tallamy. I, I think we're living in a time when it's hard for people to imagine how they can make a difference in the world. But through my work with children's gardens and slow food and history, I, I see so many modern applications, organic gardening lessons, um, all these things that can help us build one backyard at a time, connections that grill builds green bridges and watersheds that are more environmentally sound. So I asked them if I could write not just a traditional book about garden history, but one about how all of our ancestors cultivated in their backyard the things that helped them nourish their families, medicate their families, improve life and aesthetic. And that's really how this book was born. That and a pandemic, because certainly a little bit more time at home uh, helps the person get a book written along the way, too. Yeah, there's so many creative silver linings to the pandemic um, that we've caught here where it's like, well, I had a bunch of time, so I finally got to sit down and write this thing. Um, and I think it's so interesting, too, in that, you know, a lot of people will go to museums or archaeological sites. And so it's sort of like the so what, like, OK, well, that's really cool that that's what the pilgrims did. But why does it matter today? And this is sort of the suggestion, not just a suggestion, it's a critical part of the book is like, here's a way we can make the, the modern world more sustainable. Not to suggest that everything we did in the 17th and 18th century was sustainable. There was a lot of uh, unsustainable farming practices. We think about tobacco and places like where we're broadcasting out of here in Maryland, not the best way of treating the soil. But there were a lot of sustainable um, aspects to it as well. I'm curious if you maybe could could pluck something out there, sort of an example of sustainability built into that historic time period that, you know, the, the book should suggest we could return to or, or modern gardeners might consider. Sure. And you really bring up a great point. And I'm not a person who romanticizes the past. There's a lot that we're best to just say goodbye and good riddance to from the past. Um, but I also think we're at a time in our culture where Sometimes we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And even just in the concept of heirloom seeds and plants, we sometimes think better living through science meant that we pour a lot of chemicals onto the ground and that we um, cultivate things that were really bred for shipping and for tolerance to a chemical load. And um, 
you know, there are things embedded in these seeds and plants of the past that when we carry them forward, it's not just those plants, but the practices that went along with them. Simple things, how to make a cup of herbal tea, how to have uh, build a raised bed garden where you're concentrating the quality soil, all kinds of organic gardening practices and plants that helped us live closer to home without uh, such a huge carbon footprint. Because really, in our history, we were cultivating orchard trees that weren't chemically dependent. We were growing plants that served the home gardener in the very place that we live, not just seeds that were developed for agribusiness in the Midwest. And to me, it's it's plucking from those sorts of things to highlight great plants that we're in danger of losing, uh, great practices that we were leaving behind us and weaving them back into the modern fabric of gardening. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that we brought up the pandemic before and sort of this recognition of how perhaps unsustainable our lives were. Or, you know, I think a lot of us went through this moment where we're like, oh, my God, like they don't have the food I need at the grocery store. Um, what would happen if 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 that, you know, and and the the goal here, I don't think for most people is to be completely self-sufficient but being perhaps a little bit more sufficient. I mean, you see this in the proliferation of chickens. Like, it seems like everybody in our neighborhood has chickens now. Um, and that's a good thing, I think. Uh, and I think it's sort of a recognition of, like, we don't have to be completely dependent on a commercialized, you know, multi-state process for basic things like eggs if you don't want to be. Um, and I think the pandemic was sort of, it was like a, 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 a red alert that went out. Like, mm, everything we're doing is not perfect here. I, I really agree. And I think sometimes, you know, when we have a taste of what's real again, you don't want to go back, you know. And I, I think it's great that we have many of the systems that we have. But, you know, if we're going to depend on iceberg lettuce to survive in the future, we probably don't have a bright future ahead of us. But if that's just a small part of what goes into our salad, you know, I, I could avoid going to the market during pandemic because I knew dozens of plants on any given day that I could weave into the salads that I was making from the leaves to, uh, of edible perennials and heirlooms to the flowers and the seeds and things from the trees around me that really made life a lot richer and a lot more delicious. And I think really, to me, I'm not looking to just shake up the world, but as we say in slow food, it's a delicious revolution. You don't have to be on a soapbox preaching. Once you've done this, you feel, you intuit those differences, like your neighbors that are eating fresh eggs or the ones that are raising uh, honeybees to get honey, but also help out in the environment and getting pollinators back into the mix. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break, come back, and then talk about ways people can get involved, uh, you know, things that they'll be able to learn from your book. And then also I want to talk about the site that you work at. Um, and we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults 
the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Um, we're excited to be talking today to John Forte, who uh, we've been talking all about his work in ethnobotany. Uh, he's a garden historian. He also serves as the executive director of Bedrock Gardens. Um, and before we took our break, we were talking about sort of how it doesn't have to be a, a crazy revolution to kind of incorporate some of these practices into your backyard. And it's a way of kind of taking a piece of the past and preserving it by growing it. Um, if someone's listening and they're like, well, I've never done this before, or I don't know the first thing about heirloom plants, is there like the, the, the gateway heirloom plant, like the simple one that you'd say, try this. You'll, it, it's, it's very difficult to fail with something like this. This is sort of your, your, your uh, entree into this world. Well, I guess what I would suggest is start with the plants you love the most. You know, if you don't eat kale, don't grow kale. But if you love kale, that's a great gateway heirloom because it's there almost all year round. Here, even in Maine, where I live, there were maybe two, three months when the kale dies back, but then February and March, it starts to come back to life. And then I can watch it bloom and look like forsythia and then seed and gather those seeds and replant those seeds. And so to me, that's a wonderful example of something that keeps you connected from seed to table because there really is a special process that all of our ancestors knew that really defines an heirloom. It's a seed that you can save because it's open pollinated. Hybrids are genetic clones. You can't save their seeds. GMOs even more so. But these heirloom seeds allow us to take something from season to season that our ancestors grew and adapt it to the soil in our backyard. You know, every year you pay, play a part in its preservation because you're selecting the one that didn't, um, you know, if it was a tomato you're growing, that didn't split or didn't get disease, that was the most productive, the first one in. And every year you're strengthening that population and adapting it. So it's a, it's a really engaging process that I think um, makes it a lot of fun, but also keeps that cultural inheritance alive. And I might have you explain that a little bit, because I'm not sure I even completely always understood that piece. Talk to us about the, the, the difference between an heirloom and not an heirloom and what that open pollination means. Sure. Well, an heirloom has been handed down through at least three human generations. And because they're open pollinated, you can collect those seeds and you're adapting them with each season. Hybrids are genetic clones, so they're a cross between two parent plants. And if you were to try to save their plant, that plant seeds, it will revert back to things that can be very different than what you thought you were planting in the first place. And then a GMO is splicing genes together from entirely different species sometimes. But with an heirloom seed, to me, what's most important is there's this direct line to a gift that our ancestors were passing down. Yet over the last hundred years, we've lost over 90% of the genetic diversity among the crops that fed the world. And that's because, you know, where you live in Maryland, 
there was um, a bean that was famous. Where I lived, there was an apple that was famous, a green that endured winter, and all of those regional variations were saved. But after World War II, we thought it was the bee's knees to eat canned spinach and eat out of C's and peas. And, uh, you know, tomatoes came in cellophane packets that were perfectly pink orbs that looked identical to one another, but they went from stone hard to mush and they didn't have any flavor. And, you know, I think the food, the local foods movement and heirlooms have helped us re-engage with what real flavor and integrity in agriculture and horticulture means because you can taste the difference. But it also means we're reviving practices that industry couldn't sustain, but local farming can. Right. It's like the difference. I mean, the, the, the simplest one I always see is like the difference between a local strawberry and whatever thing you get at the grocery store. It's, it's almost like we say in our family, it's like it's almost like a different plant. It, it's almost like you're not eating the same thing. Um, which can be really shocking, right? Because like a, a grocery store strawberry, it's like white inside. And a, a local one, it's like this juicy little thing um, that it kind of explodes in your mouth. It's just, it's a totally different experience. And, and I know there is some sort of privilege associated with being able to do all of that. But I do think if you can try and start small, you know, and kind of build on it, particularly with things like strawberries that are perennial, right? Like it's not, you don't even have to keep going back to them. You can kind of just always have them kind of going. Um it just it's it's there's an excitement to it for me at least. I think so too, and I think you touched on something briefly that I think sometimes the local food movement or even horticulture is seen as a little bit elitist. But one of the things that to me was such an important distinction is how that is painted because you know one of my uh, grandparents was an immigrant in the 19th century, and she'd always say it's better to pay the grocer than the doctor, and they grew the things that were most important to them. And through all of the other expenses, they knew that investing into food was a way to invest into health. I'm still not the person who's going to invest into the first technology, the first, I'm not going to jump in my car and waste gas if I can grow something at home. And there are ways that it truly is like what we call in my region, Yankee thrift to do this. It's not, it's the opposite of elitist. It's getting in touch with our roots. And again, a new generation of sustainability born out of old ways. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a really, I I love that, that way of kind of putting it. And, um, I read a quote this morning that I love from a guy named uh, Ryan, uh, I think it's Odeja, um well, I'll, I'll pull up his name in a minute, but it's, tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. I love that it's, it's really not just looking at the past and what has been done to idealize it, but keeping the flame alive um, when clearly we're in a culture that is highly divided. And I think we need more conversation around green instead of red and blue, because the earth is what we share in common. And our gardens are one of the most important ways that I don't know what my neighbor's political stripes are. I don't want to know, but we share seeds constantly and we share produce constantly. And our conversations are around how to improve the environment where we live. And that's, that's part of preservation to me too. Yeah, I think we can all agree a local strawberry is it tastes better. How about that? That's we we it's hard to disagree on. There's no political background on that one. Yep. Um so I we I wanted to bring it up. So you're the executive director of Bedrock Gardens, which is an artist-inspired public sculpture garden 
in Lee, New Hampshire. Talk to us about what that what that is, and if people are, who are taking a summer trip up to New England or looking for a cool place to stop, what 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 would they find there? Well, it's a thirty seven acre um, old New England farm that's been adapted to one of the most unique and creative gardens I've ever seen. It takes you on journeys, room after room in the outdoors, each with its own mood and emotion, plant palette, and really cool, unique botanicals that are very uncommon and a really wonderful mix of plants and art all throughout the landscape. And then a lot of the art is made by one of the founders, um, and she is a, a sculptor who uses mostly found objects that were industrial, pre-industrial farm equipment, uh, old sawmill pieces and uh, tractor pieces to form these sculptural uh, works all throughout the property. And um, in the past, I was uh, recruited there about five years ago now from the Massachusetts Horticultural Society where I was last working. And in that space, We've now turned it from a private to a public garden, and um, we offer educational classes throughout the season. We have um, just daily garden tours and a, and a wonderful opportunity to explore a place that, as our gar as our volunteer coordinator says, brings down your uh, blood pressure by about twenty points by the time you walk out the exit. So special um, and unique place uh, as a new garden for New England. Great. Well, we'll have to uh, put that on the, the list of places to visit. Um, let's, uh, before we go, I'm curious, what are you working on next? Do you have another another uh, project that you're working on or, or the next, the follow-up book here? Actually, I um, was, my publisher just called me last week and we had a conversation and um it's going to have to be a surprise, but yes, I'm working on another book. And um, to me, again, this blend of history that we can take into the modern day to keep connections alive, I think, you know, keep us rooted in seasonality, like that strawberry you mentioned. Yeah, we can get them in a supermarket anytime, but some things it's great to know their place seasonally and enjoy them for that brief time and then go on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So the next book really helps do that. It helps follow and track um, living seasonally and enjoying the celebrations and traditions that went along with that. Um, I'll continue to post. I have a, a page where I blog almost every day called The Heirloom Gardener, John Forty. And I try to continue to put up posts about heirlooms and living seasonally and organics and all the kinds of things that are in my last book. Um, and so I'll continue to do that and really um, just keep my own gardens because to me, that's the best way to stay grounded and enjoy. I think for so many of us that care about preservation, our garden's a chance to curate a space. I love how you said it, your little slice of the world uh, in your backyard and know that you can make an impact there. So I try to do that in my gardens and in my community and with the work that I do. So keep playing along in that arena. Well, we'll, we'll 
be sure to have you back when that comes back out um, and love to read that. Uh, before we go, we ask everybody if they have a favorite historic place or site, something that really resonated with them. Well, to me, in many ways, it's like asking what somebody's favorite type of pizza is. It tends to be what they grew up with. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the landscapes where I live are those that resonate with me because I feel a sense of place there. And I'd have to say every place that I've ever worked, Plymouth Plantation, Strawberry Bank Museum, Massachusetts Horticultural Society, they've all been historic landscapes that have meant a lot to me to preserve. But my backyard is that for me as well. I'd say beyond my region, I've always had a great fondness for Monticello, where I often will lecture. And um, there's just something about a time and place in history when a president was took their greatest pride in their garden and um, looked to collect incredible plants and make a difference in the world through horticulture. So that's that's probably a favorite uh, public garden and public site, a history site beyond where I live. Well, that's probably a perfect capstone to this conversation. And it's a, a good time to have the conversation as people all across the country are putting in their gardens for the season ahead. Um, I want to thank you for joining us and look forward to talking with you again in the future when the next book comes out. Thanks so much. And I hope you enjoy this one, too. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.